So, uh, today, uh, on Landry.audio, we're speaking with, uh, Zygod von Graven, otherwise known as the frontman for Satyricon Satyr, um, who I believe is in his home at, at, at Norway at the time, and it's 9 a.m. over there. So thank you very much for, for speaking with us so early in the morning, Satyr. Uh, thank you for having me. It's not that early when you have two kids. <laughs> Yes, we were we were just talking about this beforehand, so um, we'd love to t- look at a few of these topics of uh, of being a father and how this has changed your your outlook on life. But um, first, uh, Satyricon is coming down down under again to Australia very shortly. So, uh, you know, when when was the last time that you guys were down here? Uh, Soundwave in two thousand fourteen. So four years. Oh, okay. So I would have missed you at that time. I was living in uh, in the UK, and I saw you guys um, in London with. Uh, I think you guys were touring with Thonic at, at that point in time. Uh, well, in that case, that was probably in two thousand thirteen. Yeah, thirteen. Okay, perfect. Uh, um, so, do you enjoy the the warmer climates? I enjoy Australia, not because it's warm, but because I I like the atmosphere in Australia. I think it's a uh, um well i mean first and foremost it's the people that make make the country um but um uh, it is um i find australia to be a relaxed type of atmosphere that i like and i i find that the um the energy of the people is a positive one so i i always enjoy Australia. I was actually discussing that with family last night. That, uh, that I'm kind of disappointed that we don't have any time in Australia this time around because it is uh, it is literally traveling to the other side of the world, and uh, we always try and you know spend a couple of extra days while we're there and just uh, enjoy Australia. But this time around, there. That, that won't be possible. We will just have to come in, play, and then go straight to uh, Japan and and do our job there. So, but um, um, the way I see it is that I'm 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 honored that the music that I make gives me the opportunity to. Uh, well, it it takes me all around the world, and in in the last eleven months. Um, you know, we've been to North America, um, all over South America, uh, all over Europe twice, uh, you know, the Middle East. And um, and now we're doing Australia and Japan as well. So, um, you know, there's a... <clears throat> So a lot of people in Norway that, you know, they, 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 most people here that are, you know, know anything about music is quite aware of Norwegian black metal and it's, um, you know, it's solid reputation and influence abroad and, and, uh, and I think they're, you know, fascinated and excited by it, but they think it's so huge. And I always keep telling them it's not that huge. It's not, you know, none of us are going around playing arenas. We're just playing clubs. But the, I guess what is kind of unique, unique is that wherever you go uh, in the most remote corner of the world, there all, there's always going to be some people who listen to Norwegian black metal. And that's interesting because you have, you know, you have artists over here that might play arenas, but they can only play arenas in, you know, five countries and other than that, no one knows who they are. 
Um, so they don't get to tour the world. They get to play the same five countries for their whole career at the most. But we, we can go anywhere. That's fun. Do you think, um, you know, Norwegian black metal is still what, you know, maybe 25, 30 years old now, but do you think it's become a part of the, the national identity for the country? Well, at least for those who have, um, have, uh, what should I say? Cultural awareness, at least for the people who, uh, care about, consume, think about and talk about music, arts and culture. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things that we noticed down here is it's taken, uh, it's taken us quite a long time to be able to get tours down here. And, and, and I understand that we're quite far off, but you know, for fans like myself, we don't really know about the business. Could, could you sort of give us an insight of, of how difficult it is to get down here from a, you know, just from a, a logistic and cost perspective to, to sort of tour, you know, five or six cities way down in the bottom end of the earth? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, the, the costs involved are enormous. And, and um, when we come to play Australia, uh, you know, it's not necessarily very uh, lucrative, to put it like that, but it's something that we choose to do because it's, um, it doesn't it doesn't eat up our entire schedule anyway, and it's it's a it's a great place to come to. And but yeah, um, so imagine just like um, um, when you go somewhere and you try and you know break even on your logistic costs, you you typically want to play, you know. 20, 30 shows or something like that, not five or six. Uh, and uh, um, also when you move around with personnel and gear, um, you know, in North America or Europe, you typically travel uh, in a tour bus, um, which is much more efficient, both, you know, cost-wise and, uh, logistically, while as in South America and in Australia, you have to fly from show to show pretty much. Um, and, uh, compared to tour buses, uh, it is, you know, the, the, the cost involved is substantial. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, your, your online presence these days shows you, uh, very much as a, a committed family man. How, how do you sort of balance the expectations of, uh, of touring is your livelihood with, with being a father and husband these days? Um, I do shorter tours. That's, that's really what it comes down to. So, um, I said, uh, you know, speaking of that European tour with, uh, uh, phonic, uh, that you mentioned, uh, from 2013, that was about, it was almost eight weeks and I knew, I knew as I was coming back from that tour that, yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is it. I won't be doing, I knew, I knew then that this was going to be the last tour of my life, uh, with that kind of length. Uh, and, uh, and, um, for me, it's, it's maximum a, a month. And, uh, even that is, 
more than I can, you know, appreciate. But uh, from from time to time, we do it. So, so, uh, yeah, three four weeks. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, as I mentioned to you before we we started the recording of this, I was listening to some other interviews that you had done recently, um, and I think you had done the metal podcast with a gentleman over in Ireland, and and you guys were talking about how you originally didn't enjoy playing live many years ago has that changed for you yeah of course i mean that's um i didn't enjoy playing live in the in the 90s and that was because well differently i think first of all um i didn't really know what the possibilities were and i didn't know how to um it's just like okay so really simple things um, I could, you know, I could sit there, uh, basically, you know, be the guy that together with the agent put together everything. Right. And then, and then I would walk on board the bus and then, um, you know, someone had taken like all the, the decent bunks were gone. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, let's say, you know, like one of the roadies would put all these suitcases in front of my bunk. So basically there was no way of getting in and out. And I thought that's just the way it is, you know? Right. And then I realized a few years into it is that I'm in a position where I can say, uh, no, you don't get to do that. You know, yeah. Uh, okay. This is this is my bed, and you don't put your stuff there. Uh, and uh, I I did to put it like this. I didn't really understand that I was the CEO of this company. You know, uh, uh, and and once I started to realize that I can make this a little bit more comfortable for myself by saying like, yes, I do have to do a little bit more than than these other people, but that also puts me in a position where I can ask for certain things that they can't ask for. And that made life a little bit uh, more bearable to me just because, um, you know, a lot of times just for the same reason, it's like, you know, some of the people who work for Satyricon, there are people who do a lot of stuff and they might ask me for things that I cannot um necessarily give to all of them but to certain people i would say yes you can have that because i know that they they work really 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 hard and i need the best version of that guy um at all times you know while there are some people uh who do important stuff but they don't work necessarily that hard that ask for things that i i i I don't give them because they don't really need it. They would like to have it, but they don't need it. Uh, and I started trying to find out uh, what is it that I have to, you know, what is it that has to be a certain way. And once I started figuring that out, things got a little bit better for me. Um, and as for the, um, you know, travel part and all that. Uh, I guess what is unfortunate about, you know, be it, um, you know, playing live or, you know, recording a music video or doing a photo shoot or whatever, it's just, there's a lot of waiting involved. 
and um, and uh, you know to give you an example since we're you know uh, right at the end of our European festival run um, so here's typically what happens um, I get up at uh, uh, 3.30 a.m. Um, and uh, I shower and get dressed. I have uh, two glasses of water and then go get into a cab. Um, then 15 minutes later, I'm on the other side of downtown Oslo where I will meet with a couple of the other guys and a shuttle van that's going to take us and, and the guitars to Oslo airport. And then 45 minutes Later, we're at the airport. Um, then we do our check-in routine and whatnot. And then we have a flight departing at, let's say, 6.30. Then there's a couple of hours on the flight to somewhere in Europe. And then uh, we're being picked up by a shuttle van that will take us a couple of hours to some festival site and hotel. Um, we'll check in, try and sleep a little bit and then, uh, get up and then shuttle van for, let's say half an hour to some festival site, eat, try and get ready to play a show, go out there and then play for, um, let's say 60 minutes. And then it's, you know, shuttle back for half an hour shower, uh, eat a little bit, and then maybe sleep for yeah, five hours until we have to get up, and then two hours in a shuttle van, a couple of hours at the airport, uh, and two hours on a plane back to Norway, and then takes me an hour to get back, and then I'm back here with the family. And all of this for playing 60 minutes, you know? So you spend, you spend a couple of days to perform one hour, you know? So, um, can you imagine like when you go out there and, and you see a tired, drunk festival crowd go like, yeah, you know? <laughs> and then you go to yourself, what the fuck is wrong? Is it worth yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, some, sometimes, um, uh, you know, that can be very frustrating, but there are other times, of course, when you come out there and, you know, there's this hellish roar and you think to yourself, wow, you know, this is, this is worth it. And I think, you know, um, I guess what I've done my whole career is that I feel like I've been saying out loud what's, what all artists talk about backstage. You know, uh, uh, and uh, I think I think we all enjoy um, playing live, and I think uh, we all feel frustrated and let down by that type of life at times. And then I think we all enjoy the opportunities and the, and and the privileges that come with you know being a touring musician, but also. Um, that um, is frustrating to us who, yeah. Do you notice any difference in, in crowds or countries? Uh, you mentioned that they're all sort of clubs. So, uh, you know, you go around the world and you, you tour a lot of the same spots frequently. Are, are there favorite spots or areas that, that you know you have 
these rabid fan bases? Yeah, I mean, um, we've got, you know, we've got good fans uh, uh, everywhere. It's not like, it's not like, um, you know, there's one continent or, or one country and it keeps changing. See, that's the interesting thing is like, you know, we were, we were, we were in, uh, we were playing Santiago, Chile in 2011. I remember that. And I was just going to yeah. say that, yeah. For whatever reason, black metal seems to be extremely popular. Every time um, uh, artists tend to film like a live DVD from you know black and death metal, Chile seems to be the spot that they're always. Well, that's doing it in. that's that's the thing is that we played there in 2011. I don't remember that as being you know particularly exciting in 2011. However, when we played there last year, uh, it was uh, one of the greatest live experiences of my life, basically. Um, and why it was so different in 2007 compared to 2011 is not, um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And sometimes, you know, I was speaking to the, to the singer in, uh, in, uh, Norwegian black metal band Mayhem, um, a couple of days ago, um, met him at a festival that we played and, um, and we were talking about, you know, Italy, uh, from, from basically from, uh, during the 2000s, that decade, uh, Italy was just one of the best markets that you could play. Like, you know, attendances would be, attendances would be great and, and crowds were fantastic. And, uh, uh, this decade, black metal is just in a really really bad place in italy you know so there's uh so so you can't really say like oh yeah like italy is great or italy is horrible because it's it's it keeps changing it keeps changing so the fan base in and of itself is is organic like a lot of things sure all right okay um the, there's a lot of animosity expressed by artists these days towards the way that uh, music has been made a, a commodity and, and a lot of artists who really don't even believe that record sales matter anymore. Um, I guess I, I will get your opinion on that, but can you give us an insight into how record deals are, are structured now with labels and in terms of how they they fund an album and how that ties in with touring and merchandising and, and all these things that allow them to uh, uh, to keep themselves afloat? Well, I mean, it's like you're saying, um, they, they try and get involved with the entire business aspect of the band. So, you know, with a cut of, uh, live income or, or merch income or whatever it may be. For us, it's a little bit different though, because, um, you know, for the last few years or so, um, bands, have chosen a path where they say, you know, like, uh, we're going to just, uh, um, own the master recording ourselves and then, um, you know, uh, get ourselves some. So they're almost leasing it to yeah, the label. Exactly. They're leasing it to the label. And, uh, and I see, I see, uh, more and more bands doing that. And, uh, that's been, I guess. And I see, I see uh, more and more bands doing that, and uh, that's been, I guess, the thing that's been going on for the last five years or something. But, but uh, the, we actually started doing that 
uh, in the 90s, in the late 90s. Uh, so uh, many of the things that we did. Uh, so, for example, when we signed to Roadrunner in 2005 and they released, and I guess at the time they were the biggest independent uh, record label um and and uh you know the albums now diabolical the age of nero and uh the self-titled album satiric on the roll released by roadrunner and marketed by roadrunner but the masters were owned by satiric on and leased to roadrunner and that's a model that we started uh, using already in the late nineties because we, we felt back then that to sign away the ownership of our music for life wasn't, we, we struggled to see like, why would we, why would that be something that we would benefit from? You know, uh, couldn't find any good reason to do it that way. So. So we, not everything that we've done, but most of what we've done, we own ourselves. And I think as we're going through all these changes with, you know, from physical format to streaming and uh, all the problems uh, everyone has been facing with um, um, illegal downloads and everything, uh, to, as an artist, to own everything that you do yourself is... It's essential. So we're not that involved with the type of uh, 360 deals that many bands are because when we speak to record companies, um, it's not really so much about like, what do you get this or that? It's just like, we have this and we're paying for this. Would you like to lease it or not? You know? Yeah. Uh, right. Oh, interesting. Um, so, you know, when music is released, it's initially extreme. So when you look at something like, you know, Kiss or, or Marilyn Manson or yourselves, um, have you ever thought about the fact that, you know, maybe in 15 years, you know, one of your early albums could end up being the commercial for a Microsoft product or something along those lines? Yeah, I never, I never imagined anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how, um, you know, having been involved with the, the scene from its infancy how do you think the the genre has has changed over time and and i guess do you do you think its values are the same um now um well you know in general when you're discussing this with uh, with uh, fans or media the the chosen angle is typically how you know how has Satyricon changed? And what I keep saying is that I'm not sure that Satyricon has walked away from you know black metal, but I'm pretty sure that black metal has changed a lot in the last 20, 25 years, and that we have been a part in making that change together with many other bands. And and uh, um, when we you know, when we use references, um, I think we have to acknowledge that we're a part of a moving vehicle. We're not standing still. It's it's not 1991 anymore. And uh, and uh, the fact that you know uh, black metal and satiric on other bands uh, sound different than 
then then back then only only makes sense and i as far as principles um i feel that the people that i know that had strong principles back then um still have that today and the people that didn't have it back then uh still don't have it you know there are people there are pe- people out there that i have known since 93 94 that i never felt were really hardcore when it came to you know black metal philosophy and way of life and you know dedication to the craft and black metal as an institution that is bigger than you as an individual there are some people that never really subscribed to that type of thinking uh, in 1994 and they i know these people and they still play and and they're still not hardcore and they never were. And there are other people that it, I know that were very hardcore back then and they're still very hardcore these days. So it's, um, I guess the, these principles and uh, ideals, they are in the ownership of individuals much more than a, a big group of people. If you see what I'm saying. Yeah. Mm, I do. Um, look, I, I don't want to get overtly political in this, but there were, there were a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about. And, you know, black metal going back to these, these, uh, I guess, uh, original back in the scene had, had sort of these pre-Christian Odinistic beliefs about the people of the land. You know, you're a worldly guy and you get the chance to, to, to travel around now. How do you think that sort of plays into today's political environment where we've got a very defined, you know, left versus right, um, open borders versus uh, nationalistic uh, belief system? Because, you know, even outside of the context of music, this is a very big um, political talking point in, in Australia, as it is in the US, as it is specifically in Germany and Europe. Um, and, and black metal had was very, very strong in its opinions on a lot of these things in its, in its infancy. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that that is the case anymore, though. Uh, and... Uh... Uh, hmm. what should I say? Uh, I think, I think I find in general the heavy metal community to be, uh, extremely tolerant. Um, um, there is a difference between, there is a difference between, uh, you know, like a, uh, I guess, you know, redneck, Pantera fan and uh, someone uh, listening to, I guess, uh, more underground type of bands somewhere in Europe. You know, there might be a difference right there. The the environment that they are part of and uh, the way they've been raised and and uh, and the kind of things that they're interested in and how committed they are to heavy metal culture. You know, some people like, uh, some people like heavy metal because it's, um, simply the music that appeals to them and that's about it. And they might, you know, they might, uh, have stronger political opinions, but I think the people who are committed to heavy metal as a lifestyle, not just like some music they listen to, in general, seems to be very tolerant people uh, when it comes when it comes to uh, 
Um, you know, I know a lot of I know a lot of underground metal people, and they don't really strike me as you know being racist or homophobic or uh, in general uh, being weird is okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, which I think is a good thing. And uh, and would would it be safe to say that that you would I guess consider a lot of these national socialist ideas that that are in black metal they're they're pretty fringe as far as you're concerned uh i i don't really you know i don't see it anywhere i remember i remember there were some things like that coming out of you know germany and perhaps eastern europe many many years ago but i can't say that i've seen a lot of that for a long long time and whenever i would from time to time see things like that uh it was, you know, baby band stuff. None of the really big bands um, were ambassadors of any such direction. And I think, if anything, uh, when you see, like, you know, more hardcore, um, you know, political views today, you'll find that, um, I mean, uh, probably in the White House, you know. <laughs> that's I just take a sip of water anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's where all the that's where all the like you know statements that divide are coming from. Yeah. So um uh on a separate with the change in sound that Satyricon's made over the ages, it reminds me of another one of my favorite bands I listened to, which was Entombed, which really adopted this death and roll sound. Um, you know, we're talking about the philosophy of black metal, but do you guys consider yourself a black metal anymore? Are you just a metal band? Uh, well, Tim, uh, no, I consider myself as a member of a black metal band and, and a, a songwriter in the black metal genre. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier. I said, you know, the music style changes. What I, but however, when it comes to, you know, the rock influences, uh, the, what I was thinking back then, which, um, I, uh, I started analyzing Bathory, Venom, Celtic Frost, these bands from the eighties and thinking to myself that actually the stuff that I like the most is more, um, it's more straightforward, and I felt that we we had done a lot of things that were uh, avant-garde and progressive. And I thought to myself that um, um, I wanted to try and make you know more muscular riffs that uh, had their feet more firmly planted on the ground, and I felt that. That's what I was hearing if I was listening to, you know, um, Circle of the Tyrants by Celtic Frost or, you know, Seven Gates of Hell by Venom or, uh, uh, you know, uh, various uh, Bathory songs, Necromancy or whatever, and uh, or Race the Dead. And I've, I, I felt that, that what we were trying to do by incorporating those type of riffs and that style of songwriting is that we weren't really bringing rock and roll into black metal. I felt that we were bringing more um, old black metal type of thinking into current day black metal. Uh, and that was my, 
approach. But I think what happens a lot of the time is people aren't interested enough in music to to reflect upon these things. So it's hard for them to see see the connections. I think it's interesting, you know, when when I hear something, is to try and understand where does that come from. You know, and and how how this how how does this link up with something else? Uh, and if you are interested in these things, uh, you know, you start realizing a lot of um, uh, connections uh, within the world of music that I, as a music fan, find to be deeply fascinating. And you know, you guys have shown yourself to be adaptive to change through your discography, um, but have you ever found do you, do you ever feel the pressure of expectation of being satiricon and, and being sort of trapped in a a particular sound or or expectation of sound? Mm, not really. I mean, um, um, I'm not sure. I feel that I can do you know like a electronica record, uh, but but uh, I'm not sure. That- Why not? Morbid Angel <laughs> <Yeah>. did it. <laughs> uh, but um, but I, I'm not sure that I want to do one either. Uh, so, but, um, uh, I mean, most of the time I'm fine doing what I'm doing. I remember, um, I remember, um, when I was, I was genuinely surprised when I started promoting the previous Satyricon record and, uh, and then, uh, it was presented to me by many journalists as, as the inclusion of singer Sievert Hayem on our single Phoenix was, was a, a controversial and, and perhaps even brave move. And I, I, like I was saying to our live bass player, I said, why is that controversial and why is that brave? First of all, this is a guy that he doesn't exactly sound like, you know, like a happy guy. Uh, he, he spent his whole life playing dark music in one way or another. Secondly, uh, uh, he, uh, what he's doing with us is, is not happy stuff either. And he's, uh, it wouldn't be the, like, you know, it wouldn't be the first time in history where someone, um, is, is singing on the metal songs with a clean voice either. So, so, I, uh, that, yeah, like my live bass player suggested this, sometimes I perhaps underestimate how conservative, uh, you know, the metal scene can be. But whenever, uh, whenever I do reflect upon that and, 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 and see it, I still, I still do what I would like to do because, um, because I should be the one in charge of how Satyricon sounds, not not someone outside the band. That's the way I think. So, yeah. Uh, do you ever worry about, as you, uh, I guess, possibly the limitations of what you can do as as we all get older? Like, is there a sort of a thought process of you know where the band heads and and can Frost continue to you know play the way that he does for another couple of decades and, and those sorts of issues? Yeah, I mean that is a that is a great question. That is something that uh, I am sure. Um, 
I'm sure most bands um, from from the same uh, you know area era as as my band think about and perhaps you know have some like uh, make some locker room jokes about, but but uh, I'm not sure they they all discuss it seriously. But that is something that I've tried to discuss seriously with my guys and. And um, and they all find it uh, deeply uncomfortable. They really do. Uh, when I bring up these issues, when I start talking about it, because I, you know, I tell, um, I, I I talk to some of the people that I play with. And I say, listen, you're 45 now. Uh, in five years, you'll be 50. Uh, and where, what are you going to do to make sure? that your body allows you to do what you want to do when you're 50. What are you, what are your plans for that? You know? And, um, and that is something that makes people deeply uncomfortable uh, when you start discussing these things, but you have to, you have to, you have to talk about these things because, you know, once they get there, um, it's too late. They have to do it now. I, I was going to ask you a few other questions, but this is probably the ideal time to, to segue to this question. Um, a few years ago, you were you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, w- when you're healthy, successful, and you've already got goals established and you're achieving them, mentally, what happens to you when you really get hit with with something so you know devastating? Yeah. So. Um... Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm fine. Uh, what they, what they, uh, uh, what happened to me is that I had a, I had a seizure that, um, that uh, sent me to the emergency room, and then, and then after a bunch of you know, uh, CTMR and this and that, they found a. Uh, a cyst inside my brain that had caused some problems and and uh, and then um, um, it seemed like that one was particularly bad because it basically caused my whole body to shut down and I was I was um, I was really really sick uh, for a while and then gradually started getting my strength back and then trying to figure out you know, how to do things. And, you know, my, my, uh, my physician said that, uh, listen, um, every time you're having a bad day, try and write down what, what you've done, you know, and then when you're having a good day, try and write that down as well. So you, you can try and start and understand the pattern here, you know, uh, what is it that's not good for you and what is good for you? And uh, you have to try and become an expert on your own life and your situation. And uh, so that that uh, that took a long time to figure out. And uh, I also made uh, changes that I thought were, um, you know, likely to be good ones, and started implementing them as a part of both my uh, personal and professional life. And I have. Uh, 
uh, yeah, of course, when something like this happens, uh, there's a bunch of existential questions. And yes, uh, you do, of course, realize that uh, um, nothing is more important than health. Uh, and you can be, you know, whoever you like, but uh, without your health, you, you have nothing, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, sh- you, sh- you surely reflect upon these things but but i was very task oriented i was very much thinking like okay so this is not going to work you know i can't i can't live my life like this and i can't live with this type of situation so so how do we come out of this you know vicious circle that's that was my goal um and i feel that i've managed to do that and i I am fine. The only thing that I really have to do is, is I have to, uh, and now and then go and take some, you know, MR scans of, of my brain. And, um, if I, uh, if I have certain symptoms or things going on, um, um, I know who I have to go and see and get some advice from. Uh, but other than that, um, I would say that my my life is normal. Yeah. You use the word existentialism. Does that um, uh, going through this? Does this change or adapt any of your opinions on God and the afterlife? Uh, no, my my uh, I had no thoughts like that. Um, my uh, uh, I had mine were really really different. Uh, mine were. Uh, my thoughts were the type of things that you know, like um, that I uh, that I am a father, and that it's uh, crucial that I um, um, that I can continue to be a, a solid father for for my sons, and and that I have to do whatever is necessary to. To enable that, those were the type of, uh, so, so the responsibility that comes with fatherhood was something that I thought a lot about. I thought a lot about art, you know, as I'm walking around in my, uh, living room talking to you now, as, you know, I see there's a bunch of art on the walls that wasn't here before all of this happened. And the reason for that is because I, I, I define myself as a person that, um, uh, didn't have money to purchase art and uh, art for me was something that I would have to enjoy at, you know, galleries and exhibitions, museums, whatnot. But then I, you know, coming out of the hospital, lying in bed all day long, uh, sleeping, resting or, you know, reading books, uh, gives you a lot of time to think. And then I started thinking to myself that at, you know, so, so why would I, as someone who's, you know, been interested in, in art since my teens, why would I define myself as a person that is, you know, not good enough to, uh, you know, purchase serious art? And why, why would all these other people, uh, that, uh, you know, not even care, but just have a bunch of stuff to make it seem as they are sophisticated people. Why, why should they, you know, have art and, and 
not me and my family. Uh, so, so, uh, um, and what's the point of working so hard if I can't even buy art when it means so much to me? You know? So, so those were the type of thoughts more than God and afterlife that I had, and that resulted in me buying a bunch of art. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we spoke about this briefly before we we turned on the recorder, but one of the things that that's quite interesting to me is is looking at some of your uh, social media posts that you do on on areas like Instagram, and the way that uh, as you're talking now, um, how open you are about your family and fatherhood. It's a it's a bit of a juxtaposition to me, you know, having grown up with a lot of people that were influenced by black metal and its perceptions around you know being evil and all these sorts of things, but how. Um, outward you are in your perception as, as a family man and, and a loving father. Um, I guess what I'm really asking about that is, that, you know, are you conscious about that? And, and I guess the, um, the the difference of who Satyricon markets itself as versus you as a as an individual and human being? Um, well, I guess, you, you know, um, my I, I felt that growing up, um, my parents and in particular my mom always kind of, you know, said to me that, uh, and whatever it is that you would like to do, go ahead and do it. And, uh, um, you know, you don't have to apologize for being who you are. And if I wanted to do something that was dramatically different from everyone else, I said, fine, that's what you want to do. Go ahead. Um, and, so first and foremost, what that does to you is that it gives you confidence, right? Uh, and uh, uh, I don't, you know, a lot of people suggest that confidence is, is something that you build as a result of achieving things. I'm, I'm not necessarily 100% sure that that is right. That, that surely, yeah, uh, like self-esteem uh, can be influenced by these things. But, but I think first and foremost, confidence comes from, um, uh, the way that you've been brought up. And if you're told, you know, if you're told that if you want to be an author and, uh, and, uh, you have parents telling you like, really an author, you sure about this? Uh, you know, that's kind of difficult. Are you, most people can't do that. Are you sure you want to be an author? Then you start fucking with a child's head, you know? But if you say, sure, author, yeah, that sounds great. Go for it, you know? Uh, you might get yourself an author as a, you know, son or daughter. And, uh, I think it is that type of, uh, you know, being at peace with who I am is what has always uh, enabled me to, uh, you know, being straight up about who I am. I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like uh, when I am, you know, at my darkest with Satyricon, that that is a fake version of myself. That is 100% me. You know, uh, and when I am a loving father, that is also 100% me and one doesn't rule out the other. Uh, and I would feel deeply uncomfortable if, um, 
if I in some way or another had to uh, make it seem as if, you know, my kids don't mean the world to me because that wouldn't, you know, fit with people's perception of the front man in Satyricon. I mean, if that's the case, I don't think I want to be the front man in Satyricon because I'm, um, you know, I am the front man in Satyricon and when I do that, everything you see is me and there is no, you know, uh, there is no public version of me and a private version. It's all, it's always me. And that, and that, that's, I guess, you know, if you're a fan of the music, uh, that should make you feel good about listening to Satyricon is that, uh, uh, this is for real. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. Um, I like to ask this question and I never get a straight answer. And I want to ask you what your, favorite album is uh, that that you guys have done and um i, I want to skew away from oh, it's obviously our, our new release so I'll, I'll i'll change uh i'll change this question a bit and say you know which album that you guys have done sort of stands out for you that that you remember the most for a particular defining period of your career yeah well it's it's no wonder that you never gotten a straight answer because you're asking a very difficult question um you know, when we discuss these type of things uh, within the within the band, I I always said that like any band um, who doesn't prefer their new record is a band that needs to go back to the studio. I suppose that's what I keep saying because if you if you if you release a new record and you think to yourself. It might not be as good as the last two, but it's it's good. Then, then you really should be doing something else. Like when I when I'm done with the process of a new Satyricon album, it is it is um, um, it is essential to me that whatever outcome must be um, the greatest thing that we've ever done. So I always feel. That with whatever it is that we're doing, that we're at 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 a, in our very best moments. Uh, I think the the record that um, um, that uh, perhaps lifted Satyricon onto um, where the you know the game was on a different level was perhaps Volcano, um, because. That put us in a certainly change in sound. Yeah, but there was, you know, there's some things that we could do that uh, there was always like, you know, there was always uh, improvements and there were always, um, you know, uh, so the budget uh, on the second record was a bit a bit better than the no budget at all on the first record, and then on the third record it was pretty decent and then all of a sudden there was money involved to do things that we could never do before just like simple things like uh, like hiring an actual photographer <laughs> instead of having a, uh, instead of having a friend do it for us and things like that um but when we reached volcano it was it was a different thing because then we we weren't just uh you know um taking the recording process to to some of the finest places in in the small country of Norway, then we were really uh, 
taking the recording process to one of the best recording studios in the world. And we weren't just using some of the best uh, engineers in Norway. Uh, we were, you know, um, hiring the services of some of, of, of the best engineers in the world. Um, and uh, I felt that working like that, um, if anything, it didn't compromise my my art, you know. If I if I uh, was trying to make things sound a certain way, you know, um, I didn't have to give up at some point because we were running out of time. I could say that, like, okay, uh, even if the meter is running and this, you know, takes days when it should only take hours, it's just going to have to take days and we've got the budget to to do it. So let's do it. You know, would you let me flip the question on his head then and say, wh which album that you reflect on now are you least happy with? Uh, I suppose the, the first record. Uh, yeah. Then, so when I, when I hear something off of that record, I, I, I never feel embarrassed or ashamed or anything like that because first of all uh it is 100% authentic what what i hear on that record is uh, frost and myself um you know playing with with our hearts on the sleeve and we really really uh did our very best and i know that at the time uh this this was the very best that we could do. Uh, and I know that to many, many people, that is a fantastic record. To me, it's not a fantastic record because what I'm hearing is I'm hearing an inexperienced songwriter, uh, uh, hear a lyricist lacking in an experience and maturity. Um, uh, I hear, you know, someone singing, trying to figure out how to do this uh properly i hear uh, a lot of bad drumming i hear a lot of um uh technical things that um that uh are completely unnecessary and some of them just the consequence of basically having no money to do things properly so yeah um i i'd like to begin to ask you about uh, your wine business but but before we get onto this i know that people keep coming at you with this question but i bought i remember buying the moon fog sampler in 2000 where you did the, you did a couple of tracks outside of satiricon and one was ibon with with phil anselmo of of pantera is there any talk about reviving that especially or, or other side projects that you can clearly do you know from your computer these days well every time uh when uh my brother Philip and I meet. We talk about it. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's uh, that's surely something that we would love to do, but it, it is hard to make that happen. It is. Um, I'm not really in touch with Henris, and, uh, and nor is Philip. Uh, um, well, that's a different story. Yes, I guess Killjoy of Necrophagia didn't necessarily yeah i i don't know if he in terms of 
lyrics that was that was pretty much Philip for the most part and in terms of music that was 95% me if not more so um I'm sure we would um I mean Philip and I uh, just being brutally honest Philip and I could do Ibon without Fenris and and without our our late brother Killjoy, but I think that um, uh, we should have finished it when when we were working on this back in in late nineties, early two thousands. But uh, uh, frankly speak, speaking, it, it was it was Philip's addiction at the time that ruined this whole project. That's that's. All there is to it, you know. I could talk about this and that, but that's what it comes down to. It was at the, at the time, it was beyond fucked up, and uh, yeah, yeah. But he really was, you know. Like we were, we, we were in the studio trying to do things. I'd come out from the recording room. I'd find him, you know, um, lying passed out on pills, heroin, whatever, uh, on the floor. And, uh, uh, you know, with his entourage surrounding him, not wanting to interfere or do anything that could offend him because he was the, you know, the, the big guy. And then I'd be like thinking to myself, what the hell is this? You know, like, you know, I love this guy and he's a great musician, but I'm a black guy. I'm not a Pantera fan. And when I travel from, you know, the other side of, of the world to come work. I'm here to work, not to, you know, do drugs. So, so for me, that was a deeply frustrating period that really upset me. Um, but I consider Philip, uh, one of my very best friends and an outstanding musician. Uh, so, uh, in one way or another, I would love to do more music with Philip at some point. That's for sure. It's really a shame. I, I uh, that, that period of time, because personally, I mean, you've sort of expressed that you're not a Pantera fan, but I really loved those last few albums that I did. They were just really straightforward and, and very heavy. But um, even people that I know who are watching them uh, live around that, that period of time said that he was really in a, in a bad spot for, for quite a few years. Did you, did you know him for a long time before that sort of period of, uh, of turmoil? No, I didn't. And uh, perhaps if I, if I would have, Maybe it would things have would have been a little bit easier, but uh, um, no, I, I I can't remember if I uh, if it was ninety eight or ninety nine uh, where where I got to know him, but uh, but uh, might have been ninety eight, I suppose. But then, yeah, and then we were on tour with them in two thousand and. I have to say this though about their music is that in hindsight I um I like it. I didn't like the music back then when we were you know actually on tour with them and uh had a lot to do with them but uh in hindsight I've grown to to like their music. I think the brothers the way they interact musically uh is very intriguing there's nothing quite like it this understanding uh, rhythmical understanding that the abbott brothers had is 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 unique and um 
and uh, Dimes, you know, guitar playing is phenomenal, of course, but it's also it's very creative, you know, from a rhythmical point of view. And I think uh, Vince's way of playing uh, drums and sort of taking all the awkward uh, timing of of Dimes riffs and making it a little bit more powerful and straightforward with his drum arrangements was a unique quality that Vince had. And, um, you know, Rex providing a strong backbone with his playing and then Philip um, being just one of the most, you know, unique frontmen and singers in, in, in modern heavy metal history, I suppose. You know, I've I've seen some of the posts that you've got on Instagram with Lars. Obviously, you know you've you've managed to do some tours. As a musician, you must interact with a, a range of people. Is there anyone that that you've met or that that you've developed a friendship with that we'd be quite surprised that uh, that you sort of uh, bumped into and, and, and developed a, a kindred friendship with? Lars, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. Ah. I mean. I I I find it uh, to me it's still unreal that um, that I get to get to spend quality time with uh, with uh, some of the musicians that I grew up not only just listening to but uh, you know deeply admiring and 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 to be a part of their ecosystem <laughs> is is uh, is still a little bit bizarre you know there there will be there'll be times where uh where i meet with people that i um are like uh, you know living gods to me and then i sit down with them and and sometimes think to myself what the hell happened you know <laughs> um but uh um I guess what is important for me is is just trying, you know, um, get along, um, get along with people, regardless if they are, you know, doing this or that, and and uh, and have have good conversations. That's really what's important to me. So more so like, uh, you know, when, you know, when you're in a band, you meet a lot of people and some of these friendships might be unusual with living the life you live. I you know, I have, I have a friend, uh, an explorer here in Norway. Um, that is a friend of mine that we have, uh, we have uh, once a year we get together and we eat dinner together around Christmas and we have this big feast, just me and him, a lot of fun. Um, and the rest of the year we don't really meet. We just stay in touch via text message or email from time to time. But that's the only time we meet during the year. But it's always a fantastic dinner. And Aling, which is his name is Aling, he has he was a, a first guy to. Uh, reach all three poles so that's uh, the north pole south pole and mount everest and uh, uh probably has uh, uh one of europe's uh, most impressive selection of uh of contemporary art and 
you know, not, uh, and he's a lot older than me too. Um, but, it, but, uh, friendships like that are, are, um, interesting and fascinating to be able to speak to people that have done some crazy things that I find to be, um, inspiring to listen to their stories and, and, and learn from them. But then again, as I said, it isn't so much about like, uh, what people do. It is, it's about the quality of the conversation that you can have. Uh, yeah. So I assume, uh, obviously this, this must be aided by drink occasionally. Now you, um, You've got your own uh, label of wines, uh, uh, Vungroven wines, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, how do you get into this? The, as you know, the, the metal scene would, uh, I would expect you to have a beer, a whiskey, but certainly not to be a, a wine connoisseur. Um, well, that's, uh, I guess you, you know, you don't get into wine in a bottle. It's more like, you, you know, you, you taste a lot of good bottles over time, sometimes by themselves and sometimes in combination. And, uh, I guess between 1997 and 2004, um, I had, I had many experiences like that, that made me, you know, quite interested. And then in 05, 06, uh, even more so, and it came to the point where I felt like, um, you know, people that I was asking for advice, um, that it didn't make sense to ask them anymore because I had got to the point where I knew more than they did. So then I had to look elsewhere and then I started buying books on wine and, uh, and buying, uh, wine magazines um and and uh uh i also started buying a lot of wine for the purpose of learning like saying okay i'm just going to buy this grape variety or buy a wine from that region and um <clears throat> all with the intent of learning and understanding about wine and then i would um uh, to the best of my ability at the time, try and write some tasting notes to, un to reflect and understand a little bit better what it is that I was experiencing. And, and then at some point, um, I was approached and asked to, to write a wine book, um, because I guess the word got out there that like here's someone that is really into wine that knows a few things, and then I said no, I I, I don't want to write a wine book, and then and then uh, like you know find a conventional wine expert to do that instead. That's much better. And then I was being told that uh, actually you know what's more exciting is the fact that you're not a conventional expert. That's that's what we make this a fun book project. And Could I just ask you, are are, are you moving at the moment? Because I'm starting to get a bit of um, interruption in the connection. Uh, no, not really. But uh, no, okay. Try and sit sit down in a different different part of the room. Is this better? Oh, there we uh, go. Yes, uh, certainly. Yeah. Now, so I um, yeah. 
so I was asked asked to do this book, and uh, I guess I, I was kind of talked into doing it, and then um, I never finished that project because what happened as I was doing that, um, I started meeting with a lot of people in mine, and uh, made some friendships, and and really put myself in a position where I saw that there is actually a possibility to get involved in wine production that uh, was my own idea as opposed to the book project, which was someone else's idea, not mine. Um, and uh, and then I just uh, started making my own blends based on vinifications done by winemakers that I had made friends with. And uh, I had a couple of blends coming out of uh, Piedmont in Northwest Italy. And then next thing was um, uh, a champagne, obviously coming out of Champagne, uh, France. And um, um, also did a white wine out of the Southwest of France, but that project uh, I didn't enjoy so much. I, I stopped doing that fairly Quickly. And then Germany, uh, as of from 2014 on, making dry Riesling in the false reef. And so how do you have to de- designate all these very, uh, I mean, these all of these locations are, are quite far away from each other. Can you not get similar conditions in one area or why did you feel the need to, to reach out to these specific regions? Um, no, because you can't find uh, those conditions in the same area. That's it. You know, like... Uh, so only in in Piedmont uh, can you make uh, great wines uh, based around the Barbera and the Nebbiolo grapes, and uh, um, uh, only in Champagne can you make sparkling wine with the characteristics of Champagne. Uh, you can't make it in Burgundy. You can't make it in Syrah. You can't make it in Spain. You can't make it in Italy. You can get, get uh, uh, surely good sparkling wine, but not not sparkling wine like Spain. And um, you can also, I mean, it's not it's not really widespread, but you can make Nebbiolo in Australia, and some do, but it's 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 not like Nebbiolo in, in Piedmont, Italy. So I am the places that I am because of the because of the characteristics of these particular regions. And um, um, there is a lot of travel back and forth to make all these plants, but that's uh, that's the nature of the game, I suppose. And so uh, where, where can people uh, buy your products? Uh, how are you distributing it, and, and how can people get hold of it? Um, basically only in Norway. I have... Uh, there is an online store that I believe ships worldwide, uh, uh, based in Germany, uh, called Weinhalle.de. And at Weinhalle.de, they sell they sell my uh, my dry riesling out of false Germany. Um, and uh, you know, some of the wines that I sell are. So locally in the false area in Germany, uh, some are so locally in in uh, in Piedmont, Northwest Italy, but but the vast majority is all uh, sold to a Norwegian importer that um, distribute them to retailers and restaurants 
um, here in Norway. And it's not like um, it's not like I don't want to sell it everywhere. It's it's more the fact that um, I don't have time to be everywhere because I am uh, a part of Satyricon and I can't do. You know, there was a for a period of time I did sell. You know um wine to to north america and i would have you know um an importer in in new york ask me if i could attend you know afternoon tastings in manhattan and and i said sure i mean if 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 i only did this i could and i would but i can't i can't do that uh and for them it's hard to sit there and you know try and make something work commercially if if i'm not able to be a around and, and, and support them doing that. Um, that's one thing. And another thing is it's a luxury problem is that um, some of the wines that I have are uh, thankfully extremely successful in the Norwegian market. So, you know, looking at my white wine, um, it is the most sold white wine in its price category in Norway. And it's four times, it's four times uh, the volume of of number two and uh, they have currently in the norwegian wine monopoly retail system um they have uh more than seventeen thousand products beer spirits and wines vast majority is wine more than seventeen thousand and my white wine is on the top 50 list of the most sold products so we're having a really really hard time getting enough wine of the right quality to make blends uh and 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 we manage but we work really really hard to to make sure that we we can get enough of the right quality as i said so then uh then it's hard for us to think about like you know i shouldn't you know exporting this to england because we can barely serve the norwegian market yeah right and would it still be um uh i i I was listening to another interview you did recently, and it sounds like you're uh, at least across a lot of the um, wine regions of Australia. And when we go out to visit some of them, they talk about sort of like their first tier wine, and then it gets squashed down again, and they've got sort of a second, third, and fourth that they go to before it ends up in the dregs. If it doesn't, um, if there's only a limited amount that can hit sort of your your, your premium end, are you still able to commercialize those sort of um, second and third, uh, I guess, squishes, do they call them? And, and it gets sold off to, to different distributors. Is that uh, part of the process for you? Uh, so what I do is uh, my, uh, let's see if I understood your question correctly, but my, my most affordable wines are by uh, Norwegian standards, um, I guess, you know, medium level price. I don't, I don't have any, I don't sell any cheap wines. And that is because I choose to work in regions that, uh, are not really known for, um, for, um, that type of wine production. So let's say in Italy, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to make wines in, uh, enormous volume, uh, at a very affordable price, then you have regions uh, like Puglia further south, or you have uh, Valpolicella in the northeast. Uh, but um, but in Piedmont, it's typically some mid-range price and up. And uh, 
the way that I work is I, I work from a wine enthusiast point of view. So I have some sort of medium level price products that, uh, that, um, sell in considerable volume, but, um, but other than that, I have premium products and, uh, uh, made in, in rather limited quantities. And, um, you know, this, this bulk wine type of thing where you, um, produce, you know, millions of liters, uh, in the affordable price range type of thing is something that's, uh, we've had a lot of it coming out of, uh, Western Australia. Uh, certain parts of uh, Italy, southwest of France, uh, California, um, and Chile, perhaps. But um, I have chosen to work in a different way as I am a, um, more a wine enthusiast involved in wine production more so than than uh, a wine producer. Right. Okay. Um Sato, look, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a great conversation. Before we um, finish up, is is there anything that you want to add or, or maybe touch on a subject that uh, that I've not uh, asked you about? No, I'm fine. I mean, I have. Um, I'm now. I'm now going into my last week of rehearsals, and then I'm off to Australia. So <laughs> that'll be good. This is going to be excellent. Uh, we will see you on um, Friday the seventh. I think you're down here in Sydney. So. Uh, um, look, I, I might just poke the beast. I'm told you're a Liverpool fan, so I might bring my Arsenal shirt down. <laughs> um, but look, it's uh, really nice to speak, and, and I'm uh, I'm excited to hear uh, the the new album being played live, and and wish all the best on the tour, and uh, I hope that we can do this again. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, cheers. Okay, cheers. <laughs>